So we are uh, continuing our series in Deuteronomy, and this week we're going to be in chapter 18. So as a very quick uh, reminder of where we've been at, um, Deuteronomy, the book itself, reflects experiences about a millennium and a half before the time of Jesus. It's occurring at a time when Israel is about to inhabit the promised land. They're on the verge of entering. And in particular, the, the last few chapters, including the one today, have been about preparing Israel to uh, understand the kinds of leaders that Israel is going to have when it's able to inhabit that land. So the last couple chapters have been talking about, um, it's been talking about kings and judges and priests, and in the reading today, about prophets. So the author will warn the, uh, the community about the unfaithful and corrupt leaders they'll have and how hard it will be for Israel to live differently from its surrounding neighbors when it enters that land. So with that background in mind, let's read our text for today. So we'll, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 14. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command them. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. Now, in this text, I think, uh, if you, if you uh, are familiar with how prophecies work, there is one thing, main thing, that you'll be thinking about that we're going to have to address today, which is... In this particular phrasing of, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, is uh, who is this person that the author is talking about? That is the obvious question. And for many of us, the obvious answer to that question is Jesus. That's what we would say. And we, when we answer it that way, we would say what the author is doing is they are prophesying centuries in advance and saying that one day this will be fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, and saying that that is what the author intended to say. And as well-meaning and understandable as that interpretation is, it's actually problematic for a lot of reasons that will become clear as we go through the lesson today. So we are reaching the end of the Torah itself, the end of the first five books of the Old Testament. And now is as good time as any to have the talk about how messianic prophecies work. How do they work? And then we'll talk about if the author wasn't intending to talk about Jesus, who did they have in mind? And then if they didn't have Jesus in mind originally, why should it matter to us? That's what we're going to talk about. So first, we have to talk through how do messianic prophecies work? And in order to do that, we're going to have to address the way that maybe many of us have been taught 
about how they work. So there is a, a, a common framework that either you may know all the details about or a few, but either way you might be living in the space where this is the approach. It was made very popular in a book uh, a few decades ago called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And in that book, within that book, there is a, an argument that he famously uh, popularized that existed um, even decades before called Stoner's Probability Argument, named after, of course, the state of mind one must be in when they put mathematical prob- uh, probabilities onto uh, predicting the Messiah. No, that's, that's not true. It's named after the scientist who developed this framework of, of messianic prophecies to say that the way these things work is that there is a list of things that a Jewish person would have had in mind in the, day of Jesus, in the days of Jesus to say that a true Messiah will check all of these, uh, all of these uh, items on one's list of the ideal Messiah. And it's actually very much, uh, you can think about it in the world of online dating where you're looking for the perfect match to, uh, to, you know, th- that will fulfill all of your hopes and expectations. The way that the, this argument goes, this list is very specific. It has some really uh, narrow um, uh, expectations that somebody must meet that are culled from all these different passages in Scripture. So, for example... On this ideal list is they have to be born in Bethlehem. They have to have a messenger who prepares the way for him. Uh, They have to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. They have to be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds uh, in their hands. They have to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver in particular. They have to remain silent while they're being afflicted by their enemies. They have to die by having their hands and feet pierced. And, And on and on and on the list goes. The way this list is constructed is by taking New Testament passages about Jesus where it says, and this thing happened to Jesus, thus fulfilling the passage from the Old Testament that does this. And this framework, uh, what, uh, the way Stoner lays it out, is to say that, you know, what are the odds that somebody could fulfill all of these, these uh, narrow criteria all summed up in one person? So, If you were to take the online dating metaphor, this is where you would do the number crunching, right? You're calculating your perfect match, and then from this out comes Jesus, a a match that is so extremely rare. This is literally how the argument is made in these spaces, that there's a one in, you know, 10 to the 14th power chance of doing X, and then Y, and then Z, and then all in all, it ends up being that, and there you go, Jesus is is your perfect match, hashtag hot Jesus, because that's who you're seeing here. Although, as you know, as I always point out, this is, uh, this is not a generically hot Jesus. He's white, which is not how Jesus really was. So really, we're talking about white hot Jesus. But either way, the, the key is that this is the list that you're working from. And we would say like, oh, look at it. It's often offered as an argument for the legitimacy of Jesus's ministry. Look, like he could not have done what he did just by chance alone. God must have been supernaturally involved in the process. Usually with this argument as well, the, the uh, secondary argument that's brought up is that it speaks to the veracity of the Bible. So it's an apologetics argument to say, look at all these things predicted centuries before with such excruciating detail and look at how Jesus fulfilled all of these things. The problem with that approach is that that is not at all how these prophecies are actually working. And in order to, uh, to kind of reveal how they're actually working, it actually doesn't take very much digging for this kind, this whole approach to fall apart. So uh, in the first pages of what we call our New Testament, so in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, there are a sequence of events starting from the birth of Jesus 
um, up to uh, like a, a few years into his life, where Matthew uh, repeatedly says, four times he will say, um, and this happened, thus fulfilling a passage from the Old Testament. Then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it gives you the impression like, wow, uh, Jesus really is threading this narrow prophetic uh, needle here. But let's, let's look through uh, an example of how one of them goes. So, so there is one example in the opening of the Gospels where, um, where when uh, baby Jesus is born, when he's a very young child, um, the ruler in town actually um, understands Jesus' birth as a threat to him as the king of the Jews. And so baby Jesus and his family, they have to escape for a little bit. They actually spend some time uh, in Egypt while this genocide is happening, the systematic genocide of all of the boys who generally fit Jesus' description. After that ruler dies— the coast is clear for Jesus and his family to move back to Jerusalem. So he went to Egypt when he was a baby and then came back to Israel uh, when, his, when the coast was clear. So when that story happens, the way Matthew describes it, he says, this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So in that narrative, it looks like what the author is saying, baby Jesus was in Egypt, baby Jesus came out of, G, uh, out of Egypt. This is a, a messianic prophecy. The, the thing is, though, if you look at where this is actually quoted from, it comes from Hosea 11. And in Hosea 11, the author is actually describing God's love for Israel that God has showed in Israel's past to say, remember how faithful I've been when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, I called my son. There's nothing forward-looking about this passage. It's not making a prediction about a future uh, in which uh, a Messiah or other character will, will fit that description. And uh, many Christians, though, will say that, oh, I think when I read this kind of passage, what must have been happening was Jews in that day had a checklist saying, at some point, this Messiah will have to have spent some time in Egypt and, and come out. And really, that's not happening at all. What's happening is, is that the author, the Gospel of Matthew, is, is sees Jesus living this story where Jesus found refuge for a time in Egypt. And then was able to come home and fulfill the role that God had provided for him. Now, when somebody like that who is all in on the Jesus movement sees that happening in Jesus' life, they can't help but think, I have seen this story before in Israel. And they make that connection in a profound, meaningful way, but they're doing it after the fact. It's a post hoc realization to say that Jesus is the story that God is telling. Jesus is representative of Israel as a whole, succeeding in the ways that Israel had always hoped to succeed. But it's not one of those things where, where it's, a, a, you know, there's a list. You got to check the things off the checklist. And really, if you look at all of the prophecies like that in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospels, they all follow this kind of format. They're, they are, uh, the original context of these passages don't really involve a kind of distant future where a particular individual will fulfill that. So if this is not how prophecies work, how messianic prophecies work. It actually raises the question then, well, how do messianic prophecies work? What were the expectations that Jews had about what the Messiah would be able to do in Jesus's own day? And the Gospels really are a great guide um, to understanding how it actually worked on the, on the ground. We can look at it actually 
through understanding the titles that Jesus uses to describe himself to his followers. We can um, look at it by understanding the titles that his friends, his foes, and his followers all ascribe onto him. And the uh, expectations and titles that people had uh, in the air in Jesus' day for um, who would be the one to actually save Israel from their plight. So the, the key thing to keep in mind as we look through how messianic prophecies actually worked in Jesus' day is to think about it less in terms of facts, like individual items that uh, Messiah had to check off of a checklist, and more about figures. And that is to say that in Israel's history, there were the kinds of people, the kinds of leaders that they thought, wow, if, if we could have a person like that, in charge of Israel, we would be able to accomplish all of the things that God had been hoping to accomplish through Israel all along. So let's start with some of the most uh, common figures or, or titles that you would be familiar with as they play out in the Gospels. So one of the biggest ones is Son of God. That is a title that we often, as followers of Jesus, ascribe to Jesus himself. Now, really, when the Old Testament is using this phrase, um, there, it is actually often synonymous with Son of David. These, these terms are often used interchangeably, or a king like David, or an anointed one, or the Messiah. I know we don't often think of those terms that way. When we hear the phrase son of God, we think it means somehow it's saying that Jesus was divine or a proof of Jesus's divinity. But that's not, that is not how that word or that phrase would have been used at this time. So when you see, when you see these titles, think of Israel's hope of King David, who as uh, displayed in this statue is just ripped and ready to lead Israel into their, their future where he will reign on the throne forever and tickle the heads of angel babies. Artwork is fascinating. So the, the key is that in Israel's mind, what they had imagined was that King David came to represent one of the high points in Israel's backstory. The time when the kingdom was united, when Israel had a throne, and a time when it looked like Israel could have a, an established kingdom forever. Now, of course, that's not actually how the story played out, right? Israel was not able to be distinct from its neighbors. It, the corruption and injustices that its neighbors experienced bled into Israel itself, and they found themselves succumbing to the very same problems all of the nations in the world did. But, but by the time you get to Jesus' day, you see Jews longing for this kind of figure. In Jesus' circles, there were these heightened expectations that one day God would raise up somebody like King David, who would be able to successfully overthrow all of Israel's enemies and stand uh, and establish peace in Israel in perpetuity. Another phrase that Jesus actually commonly uses to describe himself is son of man. Now, again, this is one of those phrases that we think, oh yeah, when Jesus is saying that, he is what? He's emphasizing his humanity or something like that. The problem, again, with that interpretation is that the phrase son of man, it has a Jewish history that predated Jesus. And it's not that hard, actually, to know what that phrase would have evoked in Jesus's day. It actually comes from a phrase that's used in an image, an apocalyptic image that a prophet had, the prophet named Daniel, a couple centuries before Jesus. And in that image, the, the thing that's important for us to know now is that the, the, there was an image of all of these different kingdoms of the world who will conquer each other over and over. The way that they're described 
in this image is in animalistic ways. They're all different kinds of animals. The different parts of the animals represent different things. But either way, the gist of it for, for our purposes is that there, there are four different kinds of animals described. And then the author in that vision says, and then there was somebody representing Israel. And that representation of Israel was not an animal, like kingdoms of this world that tear up each other. It was the human one or the son of man. And that son of man or that person compared to the animals of the kingdom of the world represents the righteous Israelites, the ones who stayed faithful to God, the ones through whom God is actually able to accomplish God's will over everybody else. So there's this irony too, right? Where when we think son of God, it, we think it emphasizes Jesus's divinity and son of man emphasizes Jesus's humanity. If anything, it's actually the opposite, right? When they use son of God, they're talking about a king like David. And when they use son of man, they're thinking about God, God's self standing in place as the kingdom that overthrows all of the uh, other kingdoms of the world. Another term that shows up is priest. So there is this idea that just like Israel, how many Israelites imagined that one day there would be a king put on the throne that would reign on that throne forever, there is an idea that there is a priest who would serve in the temple forever. In other words, God's sacred space would always be protected, would always be free from the negative influences of the nation surrounding them. What's interesting too is that there's a little bit of flexibility depending on the prophetic voice that's coming. So it's not always that there was a clear expectation that there would be a high priest, like a messianic high priest that would sit on the throne forever. Sometimes this, uh, this king like David and this high priest, uh, there's language that describe them as the same person. Sometimes they're described as two separate messiahs, depending on the prophet. And uh, the idea is that, um, the, the, the point is that there were not firm, strong, checklist expectations of what this would look like. They all, these different images, this high priest, this king, they represent a tapestry of images that Jews had in Jesus's circles to say, when God is in charge, here is what it will look like. Here's the kind of person that can successfully lead Israel in that place. And another figure that we are talking about has to do with our text for today, right? The prophet, a prophet who is God's truth teller uh, bar none. This is the person that God will always count on when even nobody else will listen to the truth of the matter. There is a prophet who, no matter what, at all costs, even at great persecution, even at death, will be able to stay true to God's message, even no matter what, uh, what the establishment at the time says, what, uh, what kings say at that time either. And in our text today, we talked about how really the, this example is a prophet like Moses. But there's actually uh, another example where the, uh, a prophet will say um, in some future there will be a, a prophet like Elijah or maybe Elijah himself uh, reimagined, reconstituted, coming back to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And you may recognize that, uh, that line of hope, right, that there's a prophet like Elijah or the prophet Elijah returning because that's often how the gospel writers portray John the Baptist, right? What's interesting is that in the, uh, in the way those dialogues work out around John the Baptist and Jesus, you see a lot of times when um, Jesus would ask his followers, hey, who do you say that I am? You have a time when John the Baptist says, hey, Jesus, who are you? There are times when Herod and other followers will say, hey, who is John the Baptist? Who is Jesus? And all around, there's like, some say he's Elijah. Some say he's the prophet. Some say he's the one who is to come. Some say he's a king like David. Some say he's the king of the Jews. Again, this shows you exactly what's working out on the ground. It's not like they had this checklist working. What they had was like, well, 
If he was the true prophet of Israel, what would he do? What would he look like? What would he be all about? Another image that I think is particularly relevant for followers of Jesus who have been reading the scriptures through a Jesus-centric lens for a long time is this idea of, a, of the suffering servant. So the suffering servant is a figure that shows up in the book of Isaiah, in a collection of, uh, of prophetic writings, where um, the, you, you'll recognize probably one of the most famous descriptions of this suffering servant figure. It comes from Isaiah 53.5, and it describes the suffering servant saying, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed, right? I know that for many of you, you would say, well, this passage is clearly talking about Jesus. If I told you, actually, there seems to be literally no evidence before the time of Jesus that somebody would have read this passage and said, this passage is about the future Messiah, would you be able to answer who this passage in its original context several centuries before Jesus could actually be about? probably very hard to do because you've been reading it as being about Jesus for so long. The reality is, is in the narrative in Isaiah itself, this is describing a scenario where the righteous remnant of Israel, the people who are faithful to God within Israel, will actually experience the blowback of the unjust portion of Israel, the the, uh, part of Israel that had been sowing all of the corruption and bringing destruction on itself. And the author is presenting an image where when that thing, when the blowback comes from all of its injustice, the, the entity or person who will bear the brunt of that injustice will actually be faithful Israelites who didn't deserve it, They didn't do anything to bring that on. In fact, they had been faithfully fighting against injustice the entire time. It's not about Jesus really in this original context. It's about the whole class or group of faithful Israelites. So if we were to revisit the analogy of what this list should actually look like, think about it less in terms of facts, but more about figures. These are the kinds of things that you hope that the person in charge of Israel would do, right? They cover these themes that we've been talking about. And the very, the very reason that this debate plays out so starkly in the Gospels about, you know, what does it take for somebody to be the legit Messiah is because of how much Jesus seems to put on its head what this looks like actually on the ground. Because Jesus, um, for somebody who's supposed to do all these things and, you know, overthrow Israel's enemies like a boss and sit on the throne like it's nothing, um, Jesus's actual kingdom on the ground is one defined almost entirely by the opposite. By not, it's not about overthrowing your enemies. It's about taking on your enemies' burdens because you love them. Because there actually is no such thing as an enemy. It's subverting violence, not participating in violence. This, these kinds of questions about who Jesus is become their sharpest precisely when the Jesus movement looks like it's on its back. So, for example, we mentioned John the Baptist at a time when he, as the forerunner to Jesus' own ministry, who has been in on the Jesus movement from before day one. He was there, uh, he was there preparing the way. When he finds himself in jail and in preparation to be executed, he has doubts about whether Jesus is the legit rescuer of Israel because he thought If Jesus was the real deal, why am I in jail? This doesn't look like we're overthrowing Israel like we should. And that's when he sends some disciples over to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? 
Similarly, one of Jesus' enemies asked this question, well, this time when Jesus is arrested. So when Jesus is in trial, he's being put forward to Pontius Pilate. They have this discussion where you can imagine Jesus um, not resisting arrest, beaten, and in, uh, you know, be- being held against his will. And you could understand why Pontius Pilate, the ruler over that area, would ask him, you're the king of the Jews? Because I wouldn't expect the king of the Jews to be in your situation right now, about to be executed. It is utterly understandable that on the ground, in the Gospels, nobody would have predicted that this is what a Messiah would look like. In fact, what Jesus, the most revolutionary thing he did about all of those figures that we mentioned was that Jesus argued throughout his ministry that all of those figures were all about him, not just the king like David, but also the suffering servant. That was the revolutionary thing to say that, you know what? The suffering servant is the same as the the king like David. When Jesus was executed, everyone around had every reason to think that Jesus was yet another of the failed messiahs of his day. You wouldn't have had much reason to think that the Jesus story was headed in any other direction. So here's the thing. This, uh, I think this dilemma of failed expectations or distorted expectations, um, I think it comes together very well in a conversation that's recorded in one of the Gospels. So there's a situation where Jesus has just died. And within the days uh, after Jesus dying, there are two men walking with somebody they don't know on the road. Uh, this what's called the road to Emmaus. And they're having a conversation about this Jesus who had just died with each other. So here's, here's what these two men say. They say, Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That is what they said. That captures it, right? They hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, but the fact is he died, which happened to other would-be messiahs in Jesus's day. Jesus is not the only one. There are other ones recorded in the New Testament writings. There are others that you can read about in history. The one common thing that they all have is that they all died. But we talk about one of them for 2,000 years since then because there's a twist one that actually changes the way that you see the story heading in. So here's what happens. So after this, uh, right after this passage, those two, those two men who are talking to each other, they say also that um, they're reflecting on how, you know, what's really complicated the story, we actually heard from some women that that Jesus who died is actually alive. And they're talking to each other about what should we make of this story about this Messiah or this failed Messiah being alive again. And that is when the stranger who is walking with them reveals himself to be Jesus himself, who was there the whole time. And he says, you should have seen it all along, but of course, of course they couldn't have. It's one of those things that you can only uh, realize in retrospect. And then it says what Jesus did for those two men was he said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So after they've come to the realization that Jesus is the real deal, after experiencing the risen Jesus, then they're able to see how the story that God had been telling all along in the Jewish scriptures is actually about Jesus. It is one of those things that's, that is, makes total sense in retrospect and no sense when you're thinking about it in advance. 
This is, what, this is how messianic expectations worked in Jesus' day. Jesus is the sum total of all of the hopes of all of those figures. We can say that because we know, we have encountered the Jesus who was born, who lived, who revealed God's way of subverting violence, who died at the hands of his enemies, and who triumphed over death and over violence in the process. When we know that story, this makes perfect sense. And that is, and that for that reason, we can say, yeah, absolutely, the prophet that Moses or that Deuteronomy is describing is about Jesus. Not because the original author intended that way, but because Jesus is the capital P prophet. He will be for me. That's how I understand God's story. There's one last step that we need to consider to say that if we're going to do this thing where we can retroactively realize who the author was talking about you know, to be Jesus. If, it's, if we're going to say that, that that author was describing Jesus, even though the author didn't know that they were describing Jesus, there's another, um, another person or group of people who also fit this messianic description. So when you think about, like, who, who is that, that prophet that, um, the, that Deuteronomy is describing, it helps to think of who that original audience would have had in mind. So there is, um, you know, what, what it looks like from based on the cultural context of Deuteronomy, when it looks like Deuteronomy was finally compiled, what the concerns of the audience would have been at the time that it was compiled. It looks like um, this, Deuteronomy, this passage in Deuteronomy is talking about a, a time not long after the time that this passage was written, when uh, Israel would be overrun by false prophets. People speaking on behalf of God. And in particular, there, there's a particular concern that's being reflected in this passage. And that is that when you, when you see um, Israel uh, engaging in the systematic injustices that its neighbors engage in, rather than rising above it, um, what you end up having is uh, these, these injustices are putting Israel on the brink of being able to stay in their land. So they are about to head off into Babylonian captivity. And you have prophets, legit prophets from God, like Jeremiah, saying, if we don't turn things around, we're going to fall just like all of the kingdoms of this world fall. And he is up against an army of establishment prophets on behalf of the king saying, no, everything is fine. We are not, there's no systematic injustices to, uh, to address. There's no oppression that we're not hearing. God is on our side. Don't worry about Babylon. Everything will be fine. And what Jeremiah, prophets like him, are saying is no. It is not going to be fine. God will hear those voices of the oppressed, and it is not going to be good for the Israelite establishment. What the, in Deuteronomy, the concern that's being addressed is how can you tell who is telling the truth, which prophet is speaking the truth, and which prophet is being false, which one is legit, which one is a fake. The one that will speak on behalf of God offers a test, the test that Jeremiah offers, the test that uh, is in our passage today. When the word of a prophet comes true, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Jeremiah, in the end, all he can say is, you know what? We're just going to have to wait and see what happens. And sure enough, what happened was corruption was so rampant that Israel lost. They lost their footing on that land and they got taken off into captivity. The prophet that Deuteronomy had in mind is any prophet, anyone who is willing to speak, on, uh, speak for God on behalf of uh, the people suffering from, in, uh, from systematic injustice 
in this world. Whenever in any generation one can find them, it's not just Jesus, although of course we see in Jesus' life it is most fully epitomized. That doesn't just have to do with the prophet. Of all of the figures that we've been talking about, you, you realize that really you have to think broadly about every single one of them. I think one of the hardest ones for people to imagine having to do with anything other than Jesus, for example, is the suffering servant, right? The one who was pierced for our transgressions. We think of that as something uniquely that Jesus can do. So here's the thing. This is another passage from Isaiah about the suffering servant. So uh, this is, in this case, Isaiah says, I have made you, the suffering servant, a light for the Gentiles, a light for the nations, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, we hear this passage. We think that it's about Jesus, like all of the other suffering servant passages are. So on the ground, in the Jesus ministry, a couple decades within Jesus no longer being on earth anymore, you have followers of Jesus speaking to the nations, speaking to the Gentiles, saying things like this. They will quote that passage from Isaiah, and they will say, this is what the Lord has commanded us. So the apostle Paul and his colleague Barnabas, actually, they see themselves as the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. Not just Jesus, them. They have taken up the Jesus mission. They would say it's as much about them as it is about Jesus. And then you, you realize when you expand how, how the New Testament and the early church thought of these figures, whether it's the son of God or a king or the son of man or the priest or the prophet or the suffering servant, all of these figures are wrapped up in Jesus and therefore they are wrapped up in us. New Testament writers will say the righteous followers of Jesus, they are the ones who represent the divine presence of God on earth. We are the priests. We are a nation of priests, the way New Testament writers describe it. We allow for the sacred spaces where you can find refuge in God on this planet. We have been chartered to be kings and queens or rulers over creation, caring for it on God's behalf. We are the prophet who speaks on behalf of the vulnerable and the voiceless. We are the suffering servant who find our own sacrifices as sources of redemption for other people who are suffering in our lives. This is not just Jesus' work. It's our work collectively. The figures that these prophets are talking about is you too. So if we were to ask, to sum it all up, who is the prophet like Moses that Deuteronomy is talking about? You could actually summarize it very well. I wanted to put it in as few words as possible, and I did. And then uh, the Lord sent it to me in the form of a haiku. So that's how I'm going to present it right now. We've actually, so those of you who've been following Spark Sermons for a while, I have done this before because you can't control how the Lord uh, communicates to you. Uh, Sparker Lauren Chan, who has preached before, has done the same thing. It works here as well. So this is what I would say. Who is the prophet like Moses that Deuteronomy is describing? Well, it is not Jesus, but it also is Jesus, and it's also all of us. Count those syllables. I got it right. So we're good. Really what we're saying is, right, in the original context, it doesn't look at all like that author would have had or that community who interpreted would have had Jesus in mind. But in retrospect, for those of us who've encountered the risen Jesus, we would say, yes, that is about Jesus. And for those of us who are tapped into that Jesus movement, we would find ourselves as swept up in that mission as well. So does everything in the Old Testament remind you of Jesus? You find this passage, you find that passage, you say, yes, that's about Jesus. You can't stop thinking about him, right? He's everywhere. You see him in all those places. Great. Neither can I. I see him 
everywhere, in every story that I read. When you read Deuteronomy and you think, and you, you read those passages and you can't help but think of Jesus, I'm not telling you to fight that feeling. I'm saying embrace it. Not because it's a prediction from hundreds of years in advance, uh, specifically about Jesus, but because now that you've encountered the beautiful, mind-blowing, story-altering force that is Jesus, like the New Testament writers, you can't help but see him everywhere and in everything that is good and right and beautiful and true. Seeing him in those passages is great because you see him as the hope of all hopes and the embodiment of everything God is doing in the world and where God is headed. And while you're at it, see yourself in those passages too. You see yourself in Jesus because this is your story too. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the story that you've been telling through followers of Jesus, through Jesus himself, and through those who came before Jesus. You are amazing. You're a masterful storyteller with layers that we're uncovering that cohere with the wild thing that is Jesus in his own life and everything he did to subvert our expectations and show us a more beautiful way of living. Help us to find ourselves in the, in the mission that God has uh, set forward through Jesus. Help us empower each other to make it happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to do communion, and we will uh, follow in the tradition of the New Testament writers where they say, For in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.